Welcome to Bandits Keep. I'm Daniel. Uh, in this episode, I'm going to talk about OD&D. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Uh, and really, why? I'm going to do a little philosophizing here about why OD&D is the system that I'm using as the uh, the backbone, we'll say, of my uh, my games that I'm creating. And I mean, more specifically, why Chainmail is uh, that backbone. So then we'll take some calls from Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast and Carl from the Geomologist Presents. Here we go. All right, let's talk about OD&D with Chainmail. So you might be asking yourself, <laughs> why is Daniel using OD&D and Chainmail as it would be to craft his two systems? The sword and sorcery system and the Basically, my version of D&D, my retro clone, if you want to call it that. Well, before I get into the reasons, I just want to kind of talk about the reasons I'm not. Um, I think when you do these kind of things, people have a couple of opinions immediately when they see it. They think, well, he's doing it because, and uh, I'll just clarify that these are not the reasons. Let me just handle that first, and then we'll move forward from there. Okay, so, number one, nostalgia. Well, you're playing this game or you're using OD&D because it's the original one and you're nostalgic and, you know, you think, oh, because it's old-fashioned, it's cool and interesting or whatever. You remember playing it as a kid and all this other goodness. Well, I mean, I didn't play OD&D as a kid. I actually didn't actually try OD&D for the first time until a couple of years ago. And I definitely didn't play Chainmail. I did play Moldvate Basic, so Moldvate Marsh, right, the BX system as it would be. That system I love. And that is really really a good system a lot of retro clones have been made from it including probably most popular uh, old school essentials by gavin norman so if i was going to go with nostalgia i would probably go with bx and it's a proven track record to use bx because of course there's been many retro clones based on it but let's think about the second reason that people often give and that is because it's a simple system. You know, oh, we're going to use the old system because it's simple. It's simple just to grab that system and uh, tear it apart and make your own thing from it. So it's real simple. That's why we're doing it. Well, I'm going to say no to that too. I mean, if, I'm, if we're really looking at tearing the system down and building it from the ground up, a D20 system would be easier, right? The mechanic in a D20 is fixed, right? It's a core mechanic. And the core mechanic is, you know, roll D20 plus or minus, you know, whatever's going on, and then hit a, hit a target number. And that's everything. You know, you, ch- you make it a, a personality check, a charisma check, you roll that. You make it an attack, you roll that. You make it pick it a lock, you roll that. So in a, in a lot of ways, that's an easier system, right? So those aren't the reasons. And I think if I'm going to summarize the reason uh, as basic as I can to start with, and I'll probably ramble, it's that... When I looked back at OD&D with Chainmail, which I did after looking at a supplement by Jason Vey, what I realized was, or I noticed, was that when OD&D, 1974, I guess, and OD&D was standing there at, you know, in the dungeon, right, at a T-section, and they could have gone left or right. Left would have been following the Chainmail combat uh, that it advises as the main combat system, if you, if you look at the rules. Um... Right would have been, I say right twice, but anyways, the other way would have been the alternate combat system, which is two pages in all of the three books to, to explain the alternate combat system. So it's very simple. You know, people went the simpler way. And, and I think the reason why they went with the alternate combat 
is partially because it's easy, partially because it's in the book. So if you didn't own Chainmail, and uh, you know that's it. I think that it was really came down to that. I feel like if the Chainmail rules had come with OD and D, there would have at least been some people that would have been using it, and it may or may not have become the favored system. Who knows, right? And we'll never really know that. As soon as Greyhawk, basically, so like a year after D&D comes out, comes out, he's got more stuff for the alternate combat system. And after that supplement, I'm pretty sure that there's no more reference to Chainmail at all. So, you know, within a couple of years of launching, they've moved away from Chainmail. And I believe, and I don't know this, I'm not a historian, but I believe it came down to with what people were using, which is what I think shapes a lot of D&D. I know that sometimes people... Um, look at, let's say, the latest edition of, of D&D, and they'll be like, oh, tieflings or cantrips or whatever, as if, like, that just came out of nowhere. But I feel like those things have been building up through time, right? It's an evolving, um, it's an evolving system, as it should be. It's a living system. If, if D&D was uh, just written one time in 1974, and we were all just using it as written, then it probably wouldn't be as big as it is. It wouldn't be as popular. Essentially, when you are, what you are playing now is a conglomeration of a bunch of people's house rules <laughs> you know i mean that's how i look at it but anyways that's because D took the right turn right um but what if they had gone left what if the alternate combat system hadn't been in there or what if chainmail had been and people had favored it how different would the game be and for me i think that's one of the main drivers that got me into thinking about using chainmail with od and d in the first place okay so <laughs> Just I put that out there, right? So if we look at, I mean, obviously I can't go through everything right now because I've been making a podcast about this all this time. But if we look at the difference between the fighter in the Three Little Brown books, you know, with the alternative combat system and the fighter in Chainmail, we will find that the Chainmail fighter is way more powerful. In fact, even the magic user and cleric are just more powerful combatants. They're actually better at fighting, all of them, and especially the fighter. The fighter truly is a hero. You know, they, they, can, they can really fight. They can cleave through opponents. All that stuff is built into chainmail. And when you go to the alternate combat system, everybody has the same chance to hit at first level. All the weapons do the same damage. The cleric can wear the same armor as the fighter. So the fighter itself starts to lose some of its charm, right? And you've got, you know, the... Uh, the magic user being incredibly powerful with their spells. Uh, you know, they don't get a lot of spells, but OD&D spells are very powerful. The cleric being basically as good of a fighter as a fighter at, at the low levels and, you know, wearing the same armor. So the fighter becomes kind of relegated to, okay, well, they could be demi-humans because they're all fighters, right? So now we're going to play demi-humans instead because that way we get extra powers there. But just a straight-up human fighter is not powerful. And... It really goes against, in a sense, the, the vibe of sword and sorcery where you're generally humanocentric and generally the hero is some kind of a, a, a fighter. And you may or may not like that style, but I mean, that seems to be the what was the, the fads, whatever, when this game was being made. And they stepped away from it, essentially, by, by doing what they did with the alternate combat system. Now, when Greyhawk came, of course, they added a bunch of stuff to make fighters better again. And then it came, became the seesaw back and forth of adding this and then adding that. And then, and we keep adding on extra things to try to bring back this feel that was kind of already there in Chainmail, in my opinion. So that's really it. I think that for me, 
This is as much of an exploration of an alternate history, for lack of a better way of saying it, as it is just creating a really fun game that I want to play with my friends. I mean, we all um, want to play the games we want to play, right? Some people want to play uh, games where there's lots of crunch. Some people want to game play simple games. And I like all different types of games. But one, the reason why I chose this versus some other as my baseline was because I can really actually see a divergence, a place in history where this might have been the way that things went if different choices were made. Right or wrong, good or bad, I mean, who's to say, but different. And I think that's interesting. I feel like if I just took BX, by the time you reach BX, you, you know, as your, as your baseline, you're already fully in, engulfed in the alternate combat system. You're already fully engulfed in the other things that make D&D D&D. And I don't think that that at that point any changes i made would they just be like house rules tacked on whereas making my changes right from the core right from chainmail when when chainmail was kind of broken off if you will i think that's where we're going to see the difference you know some people ask me oh you could probably use chainmail with 5e or whatever i mean you could i mean there's no reason you couldn't use it as a uh, as a mass combat system but it wouldn't make sense to add it to the game, right? How would you even work it into it? It wouldn't. It wouldn't work that way. So, and I have no desire to do that. I'm not saying that the chainmail should be added to anything, really. I'm just saying that at, there was a point in time where chainmail was considered as one of the alternatives or one of the, the options, we'll say, for combat fully right next to the alternate combat system. It wasn't a side system. It wasn't whatever. It was there. And if we look at chainmail and think to ourselves man, what would it have been like if we used that instead? That's kind of where I'm at. And that's why, I mean, I'd love to know what you guys think. You know, is do you think that's just not a good reason and that doesn't make any sense and whatever? Or do you think it's a good reason or do you think that, that you're neutral on it and you don't really care? <laughs> but I know people have been talking about it. So I wanted to kind of put out my thoughts as to why I'm using it. It's not because I think it's better than any other system. I don't think it's the most versatile system in the world. I think that it's got a lot of good to it and I think it's worth exploring. And honestly, by using it with OD&D like I have for the last, I don't know, nine months, I've realized that the system itself, Chainmail itself, just used for role-playing, you know, without all the, the bulk that is OD&D is also interesting, which in a way is also kind of an interesting flashback because, right, isn't that what they were doing? You know, isn't it, wasn't it guys that were gathered around playing war games and then decided, hey, I'm going to play my individual figure and kind of broke off and, and did that? Right, that that's how it started. So it's kind of cool to go all the way back and examine that, not by following what somebody else back then did, because I want to do it my way. And I think that that is the early philosophy of D and D. Maybe it's still the philosophy. I don't want to say it like that. Is that you want to make things your own? So looking back, pretty much at the beginning, at least you know the beginning of being D and D, and taking that turn in a different direction than the main game took to see where it will lead me as far as a game designer is a fun exercise and hopefully you know the people that get to play this in the future will really enjoy it i know that my group has and if you want to try it of course there's a free pdf and uh, yeah give me a call let me know what you guys think okay i'm pulling a norton because he asked me what i thought rolling stats versus point allocation and I will say, if you don't have a set class system, then you, you're not going to end up with all the characters looking the same, right? It, it really just depends on um, on what kind of system you're doing. The If you, you're you doing a 
something like ICRPG, where, I mean, you have some archetypes, but it's not really locked in, then allotting those points, those bonus points, is it doesn't nearly end up with characters looking the same as I guess they would if you're doing straight D&D classes. So there is something to that. I think with the OD&D plus chainmail, it makes sense to roll. I, I think what you broke down makes sense. You, you know, if you, if you want to make people go with what they rolled and, and, and be, you know, kind of normal zero-to-hero people, then you roll. If you're playing sword and sorcery, they're already heroes, so there's no reason to. You know, I was thinking when you said that, I'm like, oh, you know, that's, that's true, right? If there's no classes, then you might not get that. But I think that by placing your stats in certain abilities, you are essentially creating a class. Right, I don't think anybody comes to the table in a game where you can build a character without some kind of an idea of what they want to play. Or they're going to figure it out when they sit down, I guess. They're going to say, well, I want a character that is good at fighting, or I want a character that is sneaky. I want a smart character that's going to be able to cast spells. And then you're going to put your points in those skills. So even if there is no actual classes, you're still, everybody that wants to fight is going to put their points in fighting, right? So you still create that. Um, and I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it's very specifically a different way of building than the rolling. And, you know, again, that's the uh, that's the, the difference. And that's basically what I talked about last time. You know, each type of game or each type of system creates a, um, a different vibe at the table. Because I think every part of the game can help shape how the table plays it. Yes, people can change things and different tables will play differently. But in general, the rules of the game and the way it's set up and the dice you use and that kind of stuff will influence how the game is played, in my opinion. Okay, pulling another Norton here. I definitely do not equate law and chaos with good and evil, per se. I think, and, and I think about book series that do this. Um, and, and, you know, my my touchstone book series, actually, for this is, unlike a lot of people, no doubt, is The Adversary Cycle um, by... Is it F. Paul or Paul F.? Maybe it's F. Paul Wilson. Um, the Keep. If you ever saw Michael Mann's The Keep, that's the first book in that cycle. And the Pan Man Jack books are also in that cycle. But but in that, yet yeah, you effectively have law and chaos. And chaos is definitely bad. No question about it. But law is not necessarily good as we would interpret good, right? So chaos actively wants to destroy humankind. Law will use humankind as its own puppets, but it, it it's... It's not out to kill humans, but it doesn't really care if they survive. Law is not worried about humanity surviving per se. It's worried about defeating chaos and holding chaos in check. And if humanity is a tool to do that, then it'll use humanity for that. And that's kind of how I view it. So when, when I would do this, I would do it that way. Good and evil, mankind's version of good and evil, you, you know, is a little bit different, right? Because like you say, you know, I mean, and especially when you look at American point of view, you, you know, the three of us in the conversation at the moment concerning Joe's call are Americans and Americans have a different, definitely different point of view when you come up with individualistic and, you, you know, all the things that come with that American spirit, quote unquote, and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, I, I think it's really subjective, um, but I would not equate law with good. Although I think it's probably fair to equate chaos with evil. Yes, you make a really good point here. I think, <laughs> I think that, uh, I mean, I probably didn't articulate it very well, but that's pretty much the, along my thinking. Chaos is almost certainly considered evil. The law is generally favorable, but doesn't mean it's not evil. Um, there's certainly evil people in a, a lawful world, 
But I do think that, like, the aims of a law, unless you're looking at law as some kind of cosmic structure and gods, but if you think about, like, society, the aims of a lawful society are generally to maintain that society, and society itself should, on, at least on some level, protect the people. Ideally, all the people, but, again, that's not always the case. So, Daniel, as far as the space play-by-post game, I'm going to be a little bit cagey and not mention the name of the game. And the reason for that is... Che, I'm running this for Che Webster and a couple other people. Che Webster has the Role Play Rescue podcast, um, and and one of the things that he's interested in is the idea of a game where the players don't know the rules at all, and and they don't learn the rules at all. So the idea is the GM manages the character sheets, the GM manages the combat. I handle the GM is going to handle all the mechanics, and the players. I mean, the players could roll dice. Hey, roll deep one hundred. Okay and then explain what the result is. And, and during combat, they would describe what they're going to do, do during combat. And as far as attributes, they don't know what their attributes are. They might know they're stronger than the average person in the village or something like that. But the the idea is to separate the player experience from the mechanics as much as possible. And if I name the system, then they start researching the system, and it ruins that. Oh, yeah. See, this sounds really interesting to me. Uh, and I'm curious now, <laughs> even more so. But yeah, I mean, I, I get that you can't, uh, that you won't reveal it, but that's cool. Uh, maybe when the whole thing's over, you can, because um, I'm curious about that. But I'm also curious about how this, uh, for lack of a better uh, expression, experiment happens. I think it's kind of interesting to to play in that manner, to, uh, to just kind of uh, know, like, oh, I'm stronger than the average person, or I have some background in this or whatever but not have an actual number to equate to it, I think that's a really interesting way to play. And, uh, you know, the DCC did a, a module where you had, like, scratch... I almost said scratch and sniff. Scratch off character sheets, which I think was supposed to be that basic idea, but it really wasn't, because as soon as you went to do something that you needed the stat, you scratched it off. So then you knew from that point on. So it wasn't like you were, uh, you know, you were never knowing. So I think this is even more cool. So yeah, I definitely want to hear more about this uh, when the time comes for you to talk about it. Because it's you, Daniel, and because it's my day off, I added a rumor in the comments of your YouTube channel. You're welcome. The town being a safe haven. Yes and no. So for a town to be big enough to have the ability to process the gold, and, and I don't worry about this too much. I'm not going to, and again, I'm talking, I'm talking about your video here about Mega Dungeons, your most recent video. I, I don't worry about the economy like at all making super sense because that way lies madness and, and it makes the game not work. But the town should be big enough that you have different quarters of the town. So there should be safe quarters of the town where they can go and be safe, but you should also have places in the town they could have town adventures if they want. And if it's big enough, then, you know, you could have dangerous parts of town and safe parts of town. But depending on what they do in those dangerous parts of town, it might bring danger into those safe areas at some point. You know what I mean? If they tick off the wrong people. Um, you know, may live an interesting life and all that. Well, thank you very much for your rumor. Now you are, you'll become famous. So you've made me famous by playing my calls. I'll make you famous by having a rumor somewhere in this mega dungeon that will someday maybe be published somewhere. So anyways, um, yeah, I, what you're saying obviously is cool, and it's definitely a different – it's more of an open-world campaign style is what you're talking about, where adventure could be anywhere. 
Uh, I'm, I'm talking more about the, uh, the Mega Dungeon type setup, where like the goal of the game is to clear the Mega Dungeon. The safe haven is just a place where you can go and just unload your gold and you know add get rumors and that kind of stuff. It adds a little bit of background to the to the story. It's not really meant to be an adventure site, and the main reason for that is because when you're running a big mega dungeon like I'm talking about, is not every character is always going to be there. And even you know you might have a player that has three or four characters. You might have a, a player that's just not there that session. You might have all kinds of things going on. And the safe haven is really almost just the spot where you can leave those characters that aren't <laughs> that aren't adventuring at that moment. So it, it keeps them out of danger. And the other thing is, if you <laughs> if you make the town too interesting, people won't go to the mega dungeon, right? The mega dungeon is dangerous. So why would they go there if they can just like go to the the bad quarter of town and get into some barroom fights and steal their gold that way? I think that um, it's a different style of play. And if you want a more open world where you're kind of doing all kinds of stuff and not kind of doing a mega dungeon as it would be i think yeah you've got to have a a bigger uh, community and in that community you can have different types of areas and of course like you said a tough section account and of course the player characters coming in town to start off with probably aren't going to have any gold so they're going to end up in the rough section of town even if they're low level and that can definitely lead to a lot of adventures so maybe uh, you're giving me uh, fodder for my next series after i get the mega dungeon done i will build a city to adventure in the RPG, Nerds RPG, City of Adventure. Hey, Jason mentioned phases. So I know you played some Ash, and again, I'm envious because you've done more than one adventure in Ash, I think. But what do you guys think or do with the phases? I, I like them. I've been running in an Ash game for almost three years with Kevin Madison on Dungeon Musings, and we like the phases. I think it really gives a lot of flexibility. I think the the biggest um, player bitch, as Jason Hobbs would call it, is that you have to declare actions. And people go like, oh, I don't want to declare actions because then I have to change it. And what if I lose my action? Well, you know, that's what happens sometimes in, in battle or in combat. But um, you can figure that out. Anyway, what do you think of that? Oh, yes. I actually really like phases. Um, I like them in general, even in a BX-type game. Uh, it, just from my point of view, it helps organize me. But in Ash, I really like them. I like that there's two parts of it. And that then should, in most cases, handle the idea of somebody missing their turn, if that's going to happen, right? Because if somebody's like, I'm going to melee the guys around me, and then you know the, the player that goes before them ends up cutting down that person, they can just go the second phase. They can move and then you know char- do like a charge move or something. So I think that the phases work out really well. Uh, I also don't really have a problem with losing their turn. Like, as you said, that kind of stuff happens. It's not, <laughs> not really a big deal. But yeah, and you know what I heard, and I hope it's not true. Um, they seem to be alluding that in third edition they were going to change that. And I really hope he doesn't change it because it took my, my players a little bit to get used to it. But now that we're used to it, I think everybody agrees that it's, it's probably the best combat system we've ever used insofar as that's concerned. You quickly declare action, I'm going to melee, I'm going to do a mess missile, I'm going to cast a spell, I'm going to you know charge, I'm going to move across here, and then boom, 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 everybody's lined up, and then when then I go back around the table again in the, the phase order, and if, uh, you know, and if they uh, want to change something, obviously they can wait till the next phase, and uh, it, just, it just works out really well. I very rarely have somebody, like, 
waiting, you know, which I know is one of the problems that people talk about in combat, that it's slow because people are often waiting around. I, I think that very rarely happens because you got to say it. Like, I'll be like, what do you want to do? And if somebody's unsure, they're just going to be like, oh, uh, all right, I'll, I'll Malay, you know? And then when it comes around to them again, or the Malay phase, they might be like, oh, you know, I really didn't want to do that. I want to use my bow. Okay, well, take out your bow now and you'll go second phase, you know, that kind of thing. So I think it actually really, <laughs> it really makes the combat feel a little bit more pressure, which I like. So I'm a fan of the phases. I hope they don't change it in the, the new edition. And even if they do, I'm probably going to keep using it because I'm, I'm very much a fan of that. The only thing that I, well, I don't want to say like better, but like as much, is I do like how we're doing it in OD&D with Simultaneous Initiative. I think that's super fun. The only issue with that, though, is that a lot of players might not like that because it's easier to die because the enemy will always get to go even if you kill them. <laughs> so, yeah, that can be a little rough. Oh, I should point out, because cause you said, yeah, we are, I just finished our 61st, 61st session of Ash. We are slowly but surely working our way through every module that has been published for the game, um, including one that is only available in PDF form. Um, so I'm kind of, uh, we are on, I think it's called the Night of the Comet, and no, maybe Coming of the Comet or something like that. Anyway, something under the Comet or something to that effect. Um, and the player characters are all around 7th level, uh, between 6th and 8th, I guess. And there's only one more module after this one, uh, but we just got into this one, so I'm guessing it'll be a few more sessions before we move on to the, the final module um, <laughs> in the series. And then, I, then I'm going to start making stuff up, so it's going to get more difficult. <laughs> Loved your talk with Todd about monsters and making monsters. You know, you mentioned the Kelpie, sentimental favorite of mine. When I was little, really little, we went to the Scottish Fair for the first time, or at least my first visit to a Scottish Fair. And I got this book on Scottish folklore that had Kelpies and all this stuff in it. And, and that always captured my imagination. The, you know, the idea of this water horse that would trick people into coming and touching it. And then they'd be kind of stuck to it and sucked under the water. But this fairy creature. Um, I need to find where, where that book is. I'm sure I still have it. Anyway, great, great talk. Thanks for doing that. Thank you. Please thank Todd for doing that. Thanks. Um... Yeah, the Kelpies are great. Right? I actually didn't know about the horse connection um, when I was younger because the first time I ever saw them was in White Plume Mountain. Oops, spoiler for a very old module. <laughs> Where they are not horses, they are basically women. And then later on I learned about the horse thing. And I actually think the horse, I mean, it wouldn't have worked in that module, but the horse thing is actually much cooler. Although it's tricky unless you have good players that will buy into the fact that like, if you're wandering through the forest and you see a horse, that's kind of cool to pick to grab it. Because most D&D players are going to see a horse and just be like, whatever. <laughs> but yeah, they're, they're super fun. And, and I used it in, uh, it was actually, I was running a hex crawl in Lamentations of Flame Princess. And of course, somebody went to get the horse. And then, yeah, they got sucked underwater and it was pretty awesome. So yeah, Kelpies are really, really great. I, I love folklore books. I, I got really into the, I guess it's called the Silky as well. That's an Irish folklore where they turn into seals. I, I feel like those are also really cool monsters. They, they strip off their seal skin and basically typically are, are typically are women, but I suppose they could be men. And they kind of walk, walk with, uh, with humans essentially on the, you know, on the shore or whatever. And then they go back into the water by putting the seal skins back on. So it's a really interesting, uh, you know, kind of fairy tale and also kind of a cool magic item, right? Something that you could give uh, to a character. In fact, I gave a character pretty recently a bear skin that when they put it on, they turn into a bear. So I, I think that kind of folklore stuff can be super inspirational. So, uh, yeah, uh, Jason's referring to a talk I did with Todd over at Hext Press. I will put the link in the show notes. And uh, yeah, thanks, Jason. 
very interesting, Daniel. I'm kind of responding to Jason's call, but also kind of mixing it uh, with how you run Ash. Uh, you both mentioned giving XP and wanting to give XP for role-playing, exploration, what have you. And so I started doing this in my Ash game. I have like a hex map where I put, you know, the map of the wilderness and it's blocked out uh, where characters have not explored and just following sort of the hex crawl guys and, and uh, what Jason Hobbs has done in Kalmata, I started giving XP for hexes for exploration and I usually give it like 1 XP per mile for the hex um, or maybe it's 10 XP per mile I think it's 10 XP per mile because I did this in my Broken Lands game so I was wondering how do players if your players abuse it do they just kind of explore and what I mean by abuse it is kind of use the meta to go oh well, if we go this way and this way then um, we'll get some more XP for exploring the hex I mean I don't know um I guess that's probably okay because you know we did originate our the favorite game maybe it's our favorite game as a hex crawl using the outdoor wilderness set um, so maybe it, maybe that is okay and the meta is not bad and it's part of the game I was wondering how you guys felt about it and um, what you do about it do you really think I don't know if it's abuse necessarily especially if they go into an unexplored hex uh, there's a higher chance of a uh, random encounter at least in the kind of procedural that I use so you know um, maybe it's okay yeah this is a really interesting subject right because I guess as I've said before my opinion is that you you want to give experience points in your game for the things that you want the players to do and when I say you want the players to do I don't want people to take this like attitude like you're trying to overly direct your players I mean this should be something that's discussed right when you when you pitch your, your your game to them, the campaign, and you're just like, okay, this is a campaign about you guys are at the borderlands, you're trying to clear an area, you know, out to this like large body of water that people know exists. So your point is to go out there and, and kind of explore the land so people can see where to settle. Or you're out there trying to maybe you you heard that there's these ancient ruins out there and your 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 group is trying to locate these ruins so you can, you know, get the gold and stuff from them before anybody else does. You know, whatever it might be. Or this is a mega dungeon and you want to, you know, there's competing parties and you want to get as deep into the dungeon as possible and get the treasures before they're all gone. So this is all stuff so the players will know, okay, this is like the point of the, the game. Now, what I do in my uh, Sergeant Swordsman Source of Hyperborea game is, I, as far as like bonus experience points, I generally do it by the amount of time they're playing, which is recommended in the book. Um, you know, so it's like experience points per hours of play, which I think is kind of a neat way to do it. I just call it attendance. And uh, it's, I started with the amount that's uh, recommended in the book, but I've raised it each, each time they go through a different module, I raise it because the modules are higher and higher level. So, you know, I want it to stay significant. This allows them to kind of have some sessions where they just kind of do whatever they want. If they want to role play, if they want to, you know, go into town, if they want to do whatever, that's not necessarily... Uh, what the module or the storyline or whatever you want to call it uh, wants them to do, they can still get some experience points. So I do have that bonus thing. And then, of course, I have, like I said, if they do some kind of uh, uh, something that's relevant or, or I think is uh, meaningful to the story, like they needed to find this, this you know, and interact with this wizard this, and, uh, you know, 
to find out the where the blue jewel was, then basically, but of course, without me just being like in the beginning saying that, like they figured that out and they go do it, then I'll give experience points for that kind of stuff. And so far as like just going hex to hex or room to room, I think that's a cool way. And I know that Todd from Hexed Press does that. I, I am, there was, I've heard of it, people doing it before. And my, my concern was always kind of, I think what you're alluding to, which is that players might go into a dungeon and say, well, we get experience points for going room to room. So they open up uh, the door to the first room and they look and there's these cool mosaics and there's all kinds of, you know, uh, information there and lore about the world and this and that. Um, but they look at the room and they go, well, okay, we looked at it, next room. And they just walk out and go to the next room because they don't want to spend their session time doing something that's not going to gain them experience points, right? I, I guess maybe if you had some kind of an interesting scale where it was like, if you clear a regular dungeon room, you know, it's 10 experience points, but if you find a secret room, then it's 500, you know, maybe not that much of a difference, but, you know, significantly more so they'll spend the time doing the D&D-ish stuff, right? <laughs> going room to room. Um, same thing in the hexes, right? If, if all they have, if the plan is to get, uh, you know, uh, again, if the, if the, if the idea of the campaign is they're supposed to be clearing out this area or checking out this area so that people can settle, but the players know that they just get the experience points for going through the hex to the next one, then they might just not do the little things inside. Now, I guess you can micromanage that, of course, but, um, that's a fear, but I think that can be, you know, uh, overcome pretty easily just by talking to the players ahead of time. It's like, okay, well, yes, you get experience points for entering a new hex, but only if you've actually, you know, functionally spent time in the, the previous hex or maybe only X number of hexes per day if you're just racing through them, that kind of thing. I mean, I, and you want to have that discussion up front, I guess, if you're you know fearful. Because players will try to do stuff. There's always at least one player in the group that'll just be like, ah, oh, let's do the thing that gets us the XP and let's kind of skip the game because well, I just want points. So you will get that. I mean, I've been that player sometimes. <laughs> I think most of us have. So, yeah, I, I think that, that it's something to think about, just like any system of XP, right? If you give XP for treasure... Um, you know, any treasure people get, you might get uh, players like murdering, you know, civilians in town if you don't regulate that, which is why a lot of games are like, no, you don't get it for that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that <laughs> any system can have its its issues. I don't think that's a bad way to add extra experience points or all the experience points if that's what uh, what the game is truly about, you know. Um, but I would set, I'd, I'd have it very clear as to what is considered clearing a room. Like if you go through a, if you're going to give experience points room to room in a dungeon, if they go in the room and they just look at it and it's empty and they just turn around and walk out, I wouldn't count that, you know, personally. I'd say, no, you got to spend time in there looking, you have to cl explore the room. You've got to, you know, interact with it in some manner if you want to get the experience points. That's how I would do it personally. But um, yeah, I mean, I, and I do think it's actually a really interesting way to, to go. So maybe I'll try that at some point with one of my campaigns. But as it is right now, um, I've got a pretty decent system. Uh, you know, too, it's funny. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go sideways on this. I'm thinking, like, if you look at, uh, like, some kind of a space game where you're, like, exploring, maybe you could do that um, as an option as well. Like, okay, if you, uh, if you discover new planets or you go further out into the system than anybody else has, and then it becomes a risk-reward thing, right? Because once you're out further, something could happen and you can't get back to you know, get your ship repaired if something happens to it or whatever. So that can be kind of cool there. So I, I definitely think that it's a, it's, it's a feasible way to do it and a pretty cool way to do it. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Jason and Carl, for calling in. If anybody else has any comments or that they to discuss anything, please feel free to call in. 
And uh, until next time, have a good one.